Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome aboard. And let's begin, as we always do, with a couple of questions. Well, actually, more than a couple, because we have one left over from last week. And the one left over from last week is, the Romans called it hydrargyrum. What do we call it today? And uh, here are the two new ones. What is the world's largest gold object? We're looking for the world's largest gold object. And the second question, what English king was nicknamed Old Copper Nose and why? So there we go, three questions for you. Romans called it Hydrargyrum. What do we call it today? Uh, English king nicknamed Old Copper Nose and uh, why? And what is the world's largest gold object? All right, now while we're waiting to see if you can dig up the answers, it is Hanukkah. So uh, my annual Hanukkah story, because I think uh, many people don't really know what this festival is all about. They know about the candles, they know about latkes, and maybe I know they know a bit of history. Well, why are potato latkes a traditional food to celebrate uh, the festival of Hanukkah? You know, it isn't exactly clear, but first, let me recap for you what this holiday is all about. Around 200 BC, Israel came under the rule of the Syrian king Antiochus, who wanted to obliterate the Jewish religion. Hmm. Seems we haven't learned all that much since then, right? Yehuda Maccabee led a revolution against the Syrians and with an army of only 6,000 defeated an army of 47,000 men. Eventually, the Maccabees liberated Jerusalem and reclaimed the Holy Temple, which had to be rededicated by lighting the menorah, the continuous burning of which symbolized the union of the different types of Jews and the eternal presence of God. Only the purest olive oil was used for this purpose, and only a little bit was found left in the temple. It would take at least eight days to prepare some more. Nevertheless, the menorah was lit, and by a miracle, that little bit of oil burned for eight days until more oil had been prepared. The celebration of Hanukkah by Jews around the world by lighting candles each night for eight nights commemorates the victory of the Maccabees and their preservation of the Jewish nation. Now for the latkes. The story sometimes told is that wives of the Maccabees prepared these pancakes to fortify the men before sending them off to battle. There's no evidence for this, and certainly there would have been no potato products of any kind at the time since potatoes were only introduced into the old world from America after Columbus. There are historical accounts of Italian Jews in the 14th century celebrating festivals with fried pancakes made of, what else in Italy? cheese. Supposedly the reason for cheese emerges from the ancient story of Judith, who took matters into her own hands when the Israelites were attacked by the Assyrians led by Holofernes, King Nebuchadnezzar's general. Judith seduced the general with wine and cheese, and when he became inebriated, she proceeded to cut off his head with his own sword. Problem here is that the battle with the Assyrians took place some 400 years before the story of the Maccabees, so not really appropriate for Hanukkah history. Where then do potatoes enter the picture? 
Pancakes made of buckwheat flour had long been popular with Jews, and when potatoes began to be cultivated in Europe around the middle of the 19th century, someone had the bright idea of grating them for use in pancakes. Why? Because fried potatoes taste good. As far as Hanukkah goes, it is not the potatoes that are important, but what they are fried in. It is the oil that symbolizes Hanukkah, representative of the magic oil that burned for eight days. Well, here too we run into a little problem. Since in European Jewish kitchens, frying was done in schmaltz, which is chicken or goose fat, hardly the stuff used by the Maccabees. Frying in vegetable oil seems to have started in America and can be traced back to the early part of the 20th century when Procter & Gamble found a use for cottonseed oil, up to then a waste product of the cotton industry. The key was the introduction of a novel process hydrogenation. This converted cottonseed oil into a solid fat that looked like lard. Boosted by vigorous advertising, this new product named Crisco found its way into American kitchens. Of course, back then, nobody knew that the hydrogenation process created the notorious trans fats, the bane of arteries. Other companies got into the game and a variety of vegetable oils appeared on the market, some hydrogenated, some not. Today's popular oils such as canola, corn, soybean, and olive are non-hydrogenated and are fine for frying. But fried foods do not belong into the healthy category. A lot of calories due to the absorbed fat, and some of the fat breakdown products are potentially unhealthy. But frying latkes once a year is not going to have an impact on health. Although from a Hanukkah perspective, olive oil would be the best choice. In terms of taste, the other vegetable oils are preferable. As far as potatoes go, russet leads to pack because the high starch content serves to bind the latke components well. Those include onions and eggs, although some people mix in other vegetables. Some like the potatoes grated fine, some leave the peel on, some actually mash potatoes, others like a rough grate. There is, however, a universal agreement that to make for crisp latkes, as much water as possible has to be squeezed out of the potatoes after grating for the best taste. Well, I hesitate to say it, but fry and schmaltz. The most symbolic celebration of Hanukkah, though, is not eating latkes, but lighting the candles in a Hanukkah, which has eight arms, unlike the seven of the menorah. True, it would be more appropriate to burn olive oil, but for simplicity, candles are lit. The lighting of these candles does more than just conjure up memories of the Maccabees. It also symbolizes the kindling of the light of knowledge, generosity, and hope, and the driving away of darkness, of ignorance. I think we need that now more than ever. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. And uh, I think I forgot to give you the phone numbers to call. 514-790-0800. And uh, you can, of course, text to 514-800. And obviously, we're open to questions of a scientific nature, uh, as well as answers to your questions. Okay. Well, uh, I actually do have someone who says... The gold temple of Amritsar is possibly the largest gold object. Uh, I don't know what is the gold temple of Amritsar. 
I have to look into it. That is not what I have in mind as the largest gold object, but I'll have to take a look to see what uh, what that is all about. Uh, someone else gave me the answer hydrophile. Uh, I, I'm not sure what that answer is in response to, but it is not the correct answer to any of my, uh, my questions. Uh, let me repeat those, uh, those questions. The Romans called it hydrargyrum. What do we call it today? And then, what English king was nicknamed Old Coppernose? And I also want to know why he got that name. And uh, we're still looking for the uh, largest gold. Someone else says largest gold object should be the Canadian Mint's giant gold coin at 100 kilograms. Uh, but uh, no, I, I know the story of that gold coin, but that is uh, by far not the largest uh, gold object. Object, remember, gold object, it can be anything. It doesn't have to be a coin. Uh, undoubtedly, that is the largest gold coin. All right, uh, so while we take a break and see what is happening out there in traffic, I'm going to have to check to see what this um, suggestion about the gold temple of Amritsar is all about, because that is not what I had in mind. All right, we'll check traffic and be right back. Okay, so uh, I have looked up the uh, story that, uh, uh, well, someone answered about the uh, uh, the temple of Amritsar. And uh, no, it is not the largest gold object. It is a very interesting temple. It's in India. It's a Sikh temple, and it's overlaid with gold leaf. So, uh, you know, the roof looks, uh, well, actually, the whole temple looks gold but it certainly is not solid gold. Gold, of course, is extremely, extremely malleable, which means that it's can beaten into a very, very thin sheet. So you can actually cover a building in, in gold uh, without using very much gold. We're looking for the largest gold object, and yes, I do have, uh, I do have an answer, but first let's go uh, to the phones to see Kenny, who's always on the line first, if he's got an answer. Kenny. Hey, go on. Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. How are you? Yeah. Okay. Can you Good, can you break your st string of wrong answers? Yeah, I will try to break it on right now. First one, first question for the Golden Globe Archet, and can I do the English Richard the King nickname afterwards? Do whichever one you like. Okay, I got, let's uh, I go to uh, Richard's English King nickname is the uh, Richard uh, Richard King nickname is his name is called Lionheart. No. Okay. And the next. One, the second one for the uh, largest gold object is from the Golden yeah. Buddha. The Golden Buddha. Ah, very good. You have broken your string of wrong answers. Yes, it is the Golden Buddha. And yes, do you know where it is? Uh, I, I, I know where it is. Is in the. Uh, where? Is in Bangkok, uh, Bangkok, Thailand. Yes, it's in Bangkok, Thailand. Yes, it's in a temple there, and it dates back to the 14th century, and it's really quite remarkable. It's three meters tall. It weighs two and a half tons. That's 2,500 kilos, and it is estimated to be worth $300 million just in gold value. 
pretty interesting stuff. So very good, Kenny. You got one right. We'll see if you can keep your winning streak going next week. Okay, thanks. Uh, let me just add something to that gold statue uh, story. Uh, there's also a gold statue, believe it or not, of Kate Moss, the British model. And that was made by a sculptor, Mark Quinn, uh, at the behest of the British Museum. And it was on display there. Uh, and that uh, has 50 kilograms of gold in it, which is the same weight as Kate Moss herself weighs. And uh, it was sold eventually to um, an Asian businessman who didn't name give his name. It was sold at Sotheby's auction for $900,000. So somebody has a gold statue of Kate Moss sitting in their house, which may be the second largest gold object uh, in the world. <clears throat> All right, so we had that one answered. I'm still looking for the answer to the question, what English king was nicknamed Old Copper Nose? But I also want to know why he was so named. <clears throat> and I think we have Mike on the line. Mike? Yes, hello, Dr. Joe. Yes, sir. Hello, uh, I kind of know the answer. Uh, I didn't Google it, but I saw it a couple, maybe a month ago on TV. It's uh, King Henry VIII. Uh, yes, it is. The story, the story goes he was, uh, he was skimming uh, coins by trimming the edge of the coin and reproducing silver coins. Then wind got out of that, so he started making copper coins and plating them in silver. But King Henry VIII, the guy he was, he liked to put his portrait on things, but he put his portrait with his nose facing out and as the silver wore out well the copper got exposed hence the name copper nose absolutely correct very good and very well stated what show did you see it on uh i think it was on a uh, discovery or youtube or something uh i'm not sure where it was it was about a couple of months ago yeah okay yeah very good you you get kudos for that one you got it right it was Henry VIII, of course, who was also known for many other things, but he was nicknamed Old Copper Nose because he replaced much of the silver and gold uh, in coins with copper, and the thin layer of silver that he put over the copper tended to wear off, and it exposed his protruding nose of his portrait, and uh, that was called copper, of course, so he came to be called Old copper nose. <clears throat> so interesting story therein. All right, next, I have a mathematical question for you guys. How many heart symbols are there in a deck of cards? How many heart symbols are there in a deck of cards? It isn't really fair to now go and take out a deck of cards and count them. Uh, it's a question of whether or not you can answer this question without looking at a, a deck of cards. All right, and I still have the other question out there about what the Romans called hydrargyrum, and I want to know what it is called today. So uh, if you listen to the question carefully, I think you can probably figure it out from hydrargyrum. Think of some elements. 
All right. Give us a call, 514-790-0800, and uh, we'll see if we can get the question, the answers to those uh, questions. You know, one of the first books I ever read was Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. It was also one of my first chemistry lessons. That's where I learned about whitewashing. Today, whitewash is usually encountered as an expression to describe some sort of cover-up. But historically, its main use was to cover wood or masonry with a protective white layer. Well, Aunt Polly had asked Tom to whitewash a fence, a task he was not particularly keen to perform. Some quick thinking allowed Tom to sit in the shade while others did the work for him. The boy led on to his friends that this was a difficult task that had been entrusted to him and him alone because others could not do the job properly. With that gauntlet thus thrown down, he suckered his friends into begging him for a shot at whitewashing. Tom held out until they could come up with adequate payment, eventually netting him an apple, a bunch of marbles, and even a dead rat that could be twirled around the head with a string. Neither Tom nor his friends realized that they were actually engaging in a fascinating chemistry experiment. The whitewash they were using was calcium hydroxide, or as it's commonly known, slate lime. But the white layer that forms upon whitewashing is not the original calcium hydroxide sticking to the surface. It is calcium carbonate, the result of a reaction between calcium hydroxide and carbon dioxide in the air. Interestingly, this is a dust to dust sort of phenomenon. Calcium hydroxide is made by combining calcium oxide that's lime, with water, and the calcium oxide in turn is made by heating calcium carbonate or limestone to drive off calcium, to drive off carbon dioxide. Calcium hydroxide also has an antibacterial effect, which is helpful in sanitizing surfaces such as walls, in dairy barns, poultry houses, stables, or kennels. The white color of whitewash can minimize the absorption of heat, making it useful on roof tiles to prevent the absorption of heat in southern climates. And various colors can be added if desired. The ancient recipe uses pig's blood to make pink whitewash. So even from uh, Mark Twain, we can learn some uh, chemistry. Uh, Tom Sawyer really was a neat book. I followed it up, of course, by uh, reading uh, Huckleberry Finn and a very interesting portrayal of life in Mississippi in the 1800s. All right, it's time for us to see what is happening in the world. We're going to check CTV News. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. I think we have Bruce on the line from New York. Hey, Bruce. How are you, my friend? Uh, Can you hear me okay? Yes, uh, you're yeah. on the air. I have, yeah, I have a little sidestep for you that I thought was interesting when you were asking about the largest piece of gold in the world. So I said okay. to my wife, I said, I know who owns that. Or he did. He did. I said, I know who owns that, and he's a friend of mine. And so I gave him a call. He lives in uh, Lake Placid, which is in New York State. It's up in the mountains, White Face Mountain. And I said, Roger, did you ever own the largest piece of gold in the world? He said, yes, I did. I said, 
was it a Mickey Mouse? And he said, yes, it is. So he sent me, I got, I'm going to try and get this to you. Uh, one of the ads from the paper that it came from, it's got pictures with it. It, it, it what it was, just a, I'm not, I'm not disrupting what you said. His was the highest okay. piece of refined, refined gold in the world. It weighs 100 pounds of refined gold. And it looks like a Mickey Mouse. And I said, I got it. I, I didn't mean to interrupt your, your program, my friend. I, I, my wife didn't go down the road and we enjoy listening to you. But I said, hell, I got to tell him about Roger. So, and he doesn't just tell me that. He goes and sends me some pictures with him and the, 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 uh, the newspaper clipping and everything. I said, geez, I got to try and maybe get that over the Dr. Joe just for the hell of it. Excuse my language. I didn't mean to say hell. Um, but I thought it was quite well, interesting. Well, listen, that's that. a that's that's a long way from five and a half tons, though. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, maybe, maybe I tell you what I I tell you what it may be is maybe okay. it's pure gold. Maybe the what you're yeah, talking refined, about that yes. statue is, is refined gold. Maybe that's that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, it says anyway. It I, yeah, I, I'd I be interested you'd be to see interested a picture of that. In the folks that listen to you, you know, it's not Ab saying, absolutely. It's, and I didn't mean to disrupt your show, neither, my friend. Yeah. I, I've I always liked Mickey Mouse, so I'm happy to hear about well, that. Well, I want you, to, I want you to see it. I got to get that damn picture to you. Excuse my language. Um, okay, I got to get well, that picture to you somehow. Um, okay, well, all you have to do is send it to me by email. Okay, thanks very much. All right, let's go to Milan, who has an answer. Uh, Hydrogero. Oh. I read it in your own book. It's Mercury. Yes, of course, it is Mercury, yeah. Uh, the the time, Romans called it Hydrogium. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, can, yeah. can you please explain to us the, the difference uh, with respect to pain when we talk about the sodium pump and the calcium pump. You mean in, in, uh, in terms of cells? That's right, that's right, yes. Uh, well, it's not such an easy thing to explain, you know, <laughs> over the air without diagrams, but uh, the human body, of course, is made up of cells, and cells require all kinds of nutrients in order to function. And uh, sodium and potassium are two of the minerals that are needed for functioning, but they're needed in exactly the right concentration. So the cell is equipped with channels through which sodium and potassium can enter and exit. And these are called the sodium or potassium pumps. So we're not talking about a literal pump. We're talking about an entry point of these ions into the cell. Uh, entry and exit so that the cell can govern the amount of sodium potassium inside that that is needed okay that's what is referred to as a sodium or potassium pump okay all right uh i think we also have naveen on the line naveen hi dr joe about the, the how many car uh, how many decks are there in a, how many hearts are in the deck of cards yes um 14 no no all right. Nope. All right. No, no, sorry, not right. Good attempt. We're talking about if in a deck of cards, if you would count the number of times the heart logo appears 
in a whole deck of cards, what is that total number? That's the question that uh, that we're after, and uh, it's uh, I think it's a, a thought-provoking one. Okay, so uh, we did have the uh, the answer to my to the question about hydrogium, which of course is also the reason why the symbol for mercury on the periodic table is Hg. It goes back to the time of the ancient Romans. And uh, all right, so let, let me uh, get one more question out there. <clears throat> what begins? What begins with the phrase? I swear by Apollo the physician, by Escapla, Esculapius, Hygia, and Panacea. What begins by that phrase? I swear by Apollo the physician, by Esculapius by Hygieia and Panacea. Tell me what begins with that phrase. All right, let me uh, tell you uh, what I think is sort of an interesting story. <clears throat> you know, uh, these days, of course, I, I'm very, very scrupulous about checking information. Uh, obviously, over the last, especially over the last few years, uh, we've had to confront all of the misinformation that is out there, and uh, much of the information that is purveyed sounds authentic, you know, until you really check into it. Well, you know, this wasn't always the case. I, uh, I, uh, I didn't always see the need to to uh, check everything in in such excruciating detail because there was not this epidemic of misinformation. And um, when I first uh, started uh, lecturing in a course on food, which is now the most popular course we have at McGill, I have 2,700 students in this course. It is also the largest course in, uh, in Canada, in any university. And uh, of course I talk about uh, history of certain foods. And I used to talk about the story uh, in 1820, when Robert Gibbon Johnson climbed up on the stairs in front of the courthouse in Salem, New Jersey, and a little band played a funeral dirge in the background, and a crowd had gathered because they thought they were going to see him kill himself because Johnson had advertised that in full view of the gathering, he would eat a tomato. And he did. He picked up a tomato from a bushel of tomatoes in front of him. He ate it. He uh, did not foam at the mouth. He didn't have a seizure. He picked up another tomato and he ate it. And this proved to the crowd that the tomato, which at that time had been called the poison apple, was actually quite safe to eat. It was not poisonous at all. And as I used to say, thus began the tomato growing industry in America. And uh, of course, I had gotten that story from a number of uh, history books on, on food, from a number of articles. And I told this story many, many times, sounded kind of authentic. But then, uh, much more recently, I decided that I better check out whether or not this story is really true. And unfortunately, while it is a captivating, romantic story, 
thinking that uh, this one guy started the whole tomato industry in North America. It turns out that it is actually not true. But of course, there is more to this story as well, which I will tell you after we take this little break uh, to see what's happening in traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Before we get back to my tomato story, I think we have Wendy on the line. Wendy. Hi there. Hi, Dr. Joe. Hi. Hi. I'm going to hazard a guess on the your question about the um, the, the oath swearing, the, the sentence. Um, yeah. I, I Go swear ahead. on. Uh, could you repeat it again, please? I'm not sure if, I, if, I, if, I, if my guess is correct, but. Okay, the, the question was, what what begins as the following? I swear by Apollo the physician, by Aesculapius, Hygieia, and Panacea. Okay, I'm not a doctor, but I'm going to say the Hippocratic Oath? Yes, certainly, oh. that's what it is. Very good. It is the Hippocratic Oath, which, of course, uh, has other interesting uh, features. Uh, for example... Uh, let me read a little bit more from it. Uh, to please no one will I prescribe a deadly drug, nor give advice which may cause his death, nor will I give a woman a pessary to procure abortion, but I will preserve the purity of my life and my art. I will not cut for stone, even for patients in whom the disease is manifest. I will leave this operation to be performed by practitioners who are specialists in this art. Uh, that, of course, is referring to bladder stones. And uh, no matter who the specialist was in those days, the outcome for cutting for bladder stones generally was not very good. But you're right. That was indeed the Hippocratic Oath. Thank you. And uh, I, I think that we now have the answer to all of the uh, questions that uh, I posed, except for the cards. So maybe Robbie has an answer to that. Robbie. Yeah, hi there. Hi. Yeah, I say 62. You have an answer to... No, it's not 62. Okay. All right, let's try for Eric. Eric, you have an answer to my question about the hearts and the cards? Eric hung up. Okay, so we still don't have an answer to that. The number of hearts that you would see in a deck of cards. <clears throat> but let me get back to something that's more important, which is the tomato story. Well, as I told you, the story it was really an interesting story, but you know, the problem is there's no evidence at all that it happened. Johnson was indeed a real person. He was a horticulturist and founder of the Salem Historical Society, but there's no record of him having any special connection to tomatoes. It seems that Salem postmaster and amateur historian Joseph Sickler cooked up the captivating account a hundred years after the supposed event. Why? He wanted to bring attention to Salem, and it sure did. The story appeared in Stuart Holbrook's 1946 book, Lost Men of American History, and it took wings in 1949 when the CBS radio show You Are There broadcast a reenactment of this. And that reenactment has been going on uh, for a number of years. Of course, they took a break during COVID, but now it's back. So every year in August, they recreate this event where someone dressed up in a period costume 
climbs up on the stairs in front of the uh, courthouse in Salem, New Jersey. This is Salem, New Jersey. This is not uh, Salem, Massachusetts. And um, they reenact this business. Well, the one part of the story that is true is that there was a cloud uh, hanging over the tomato. It was said to be poisonous. And uh, that belief was widespread in the uh, early 19th century. But apparently that didn't bother Thomas Jefferson, who grew tomatoes on his farm. Anyway, there are two accounts of the origin of the toxic tomato story, an apocryphal one involving European aristocrats and a more realistic one of mistaken identity. Tomatoes were introduced to Europe by the Spanish conquistadors from America, probably originally from Peru. But due to their scarcity in Europe, uh, tomatoes could only be afforded by aristocrats who commonly ate from dishes made of pewter. That's an alloy of tin and lead. And the story that went around was that the acid in tomato leached lead from the pewter and resulted in the demise of the diner. While tomatoes are indeed acidic, the probability of trace amounts leaching from pewter causing death uh, is on par with the probability of giant tomatoes attacking humans as in the 1978 cult film Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Today, Italians are huge consumers of tomatoes, so it's ironic that the poison legend traces back to 16th century Italian herbalist Pietro Andrea Mattioli, who classified tomato as part of the deadly nightshade family. The tomato plant does resemble the belladonna plant, the berries of which were known to be poisonous. Well, the leaves and stem of the tomato plant do contain some of the alkaloids that make belladonna berries toxic, the fruit does not. And indeed, the tomato is a fruit, according to the definition of a fruit being the sweet and fleshy product of a tree or plant that contains the seeds needed for reproduction. Amazingly, it was a ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1893 that declared the tomato to be a vegetable, not a fruit. A prevailing law at the time required a tax to be paid on imported vegetables, but not fruit. The John Nixon Company was a large importer of tomatoes and argued that since the tomato was botanically a fruit, it should be exempt from the tax. However, the court ruled that in this case, it is not appropriate to apply the dictionary definition of a fruit. And uh, the court said that based on the uh, way tomatoes are used and popular perception of them being a vegetable, uh, that uh, indeed the tomato can be classified as a vegetable. And interesting enough, today it is New Jersey's official state vegetable. Well, real credit for popularizing the tomato goes not to Robert Gibbon Johnson, but to Dr. John Cook Bennett, a curious personality, a physician with an unsavory history of having launched a medical diploma mill, selling medical degrees to anyone who could come up with papers. Bennett claimed to have traveled through Europe and seen that tomatoes cured diarrhea and indigestion and prevented cholera. He recommended that tomatoes replace calomel 
because they were less harmful, predicting that a chemical extract will probably soon be obtained from it, which will altogether supersede the use of calomel in the cure of diseases. Although his claims of the medicinal value of tomatoes were illusionary, replacing calomel, which was a concoction made with toxic mercury chloride, was a good idea. Well, believe it or not, Bennett's prediction of a tomato extract came to fruition in 1837, when Dr. A.J. Holcomb of Alabama introduced his tomato pills that he said possessed hepatic, cathartic, and diuretic qualities. Holcomb's pills were soon joined by those produced by Dr. Archibald Miles and Dr. Guy Phelps, and that triggered a lusty advertising battle between the two men. Miles, who actually had no medical education, called Phelps a quack and a charlatan prompting Phelps, who was a Yale-trained physician, to retort that Miles had about as much claim to the title of doctor as my horse. The battle, with the combatants hurling insults of fraud and copycat at each other, petered out after a couple of years when allegations emerged that neither pill actually contained tomatoes. Still, for a period, the pills did supply people with a dose of placebo that was certainly preferable to calomel. Well, today, uh, I think we should be eating tomatoes. There is indeed a fair amount of evidence that uh, tomatoes are protective, particularly against prostate cancer. And a recent study also has showed that eating just one large tomato a day can uh, reduce the risk of hypertension. So there you go. Have a good time with uh, tomatoes, but ketchup doesn't really fall into that uh, category. Neither does the pizza. Tomato sauce, however, uh, that's different. That's pretty concentrated tomato. Uh, use a lot of it. Make sure that not full of salt. Put it on your pasta and bon appetit. And that's it. That's all the time that we have today. We've run smack out, but we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.